Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Inquisitive Introvert Podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Combs. Dr. Cohn, you are a professor of PEDS at the University of Chicago, and you also lead the neuroplasma program at the University of Chicago Medicine as well. So I just want to know, what made you become a doctor? Yeah, I actually wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I grew up. I don't have any personal family members that are physicians, so it's not as though I grew up with a father or a mother who was a doctor and had those experiences. But I always did very much enjoy science and mathematics. And when I started college, I really wasn't quite sure what I should focus on and what my major should be. And my mother, who is always very practical and wanted to make sure I'd be able to earn a living after I finished college, said to me, well, you should check off either pre-law or (laughs) pre-med. And those are kind of the two choices that she recommended. And I thought, well, since I do like math and science, maybe I'll check the pre-med box. So I kind of really serendipitously took pre-med classes and started just kind of going down that pathway. And then I started thinking, well, if indeed I really am going to go on to get further training to be a doctor, I have to make sure that this would be something that I would enjoy. So I did actually, while I was in college, volunteered at a community hospital, and I also had an opportunity to volunteer in a pathology department. And so I did get some experience clinically of what it would be like to interact with patients and take care of patients. When I volunteered in the emergency room, I basically was a transporter. So I would push patients from the emergency room to their x-rays or to wherever they were going to their rooms. And I had an opportunity to chat with the patients and hear about what was going on with them and what brought them to the emergency room and I found that I really enjoyed the interaction with patients. I enjoyed the interaction with the nurses and the doctors. And I started thinking, well, gosh, maybe this is a profession where I really could help people and also take advantage of the interest that I've always had in science, biology, and mathematics. So that was sort of the introduction that I had and the reason I chose the path that I did. For pediatric oncology, why that specifically? Yeah, so when you go to medical school, you initially learn some very basics about medicine and physiology of the heart and some very basic biochemistry. And then during your second and third years, the curriculum has changed a little bit, but when I went to school, which is now several decades ago, your first two years were largely classwork. In your second two years, you did have a chance to start interacting with patients and you start learning how to use a stethoscope and doing a physical exam. And I always very much enjoyed interacting with children, more so than with adult patients. I found children to be very, very optimistic. And even when they were sick, they tended to make the best of it. And I was really inspired by their attitudes of finding playful activities regardless of where they were. So they have an IV with an IV pole and Lo and behold, they use it as a scooter and be skipping up and down the hall with the IV pole. And at any rate, I just kind of felt that kids really had, even though they were sick and even though they were in the hospital and obviously it wasn't where they wanted to be, somehow or, or other, it ended up being a very positive experience. When you walked into a child's room, it was typically decorated, whether it was Christmas or Valentine's Day or Halloween or there was all sorts of decorations, and it really ended up really cheering you up, even though obviously sometimes the situations are very dire in terms of their medical problems. 
So I just very much gravitated towards taking care of children. I also found that kids, when they were sick, they were diseases that that were not self-imposed. A lot of adult diseases are related to lifestyle. You know, adults can be overweight, adults can smoke, adults can take drugs, adults can do all sorts of things that end up causing medical problems. Whereas a child, when the child is ill, it's typically not related to any kind of lifestyle selection. And I kind of thought these were the kinds of diseases I really wanted to treat because these were the diseases I just found to be the most interesting. And I thought these are the diseases that I could potentially have the most impact in terms of being a doctor. I think adult diseases are so much tougher because there's so many other decisions and choices that adults have to make to get well. They have to think about their diet. They have to avoid cigarettes. They have to try to eliminate their drug addictions. And it's just so much more difficult in many situations to help adults get well, whereas children had really, I think, um, many of the diseases we could really very successfully treat. And we could see the children get better. And so that was very gratifying. So I decided after medical school to go on and train as a pediatrician. And I went and did a residency in pediatrics where you get an additional three years of training where you focus strictly on children and learn about all the different diseases as well as well child care and learn about normal development and learn about immunizations and how to keep children safe and how to keep children well, as well as taking care of sick children. And during my residency, which was actually at Michael Reeves Hospital, which is now closed, I had the opportunity to take care of some very, very, very sick children. And I really found that I very much enjoyed taking care of sick children more so than taking care of well children. So I decided, oh, wow. <laughs> I decided that if I was going to do a subspecialty, I'd have to identify what that subspecialty should be. But I very quickly decided I didn't want to be a general pediatrician, which is largely an incredibly important job. And it's, it's a lot of preventive medicine. And it's also being able to recognize when someone's sick and then make sure that you refer the patient to the proper specialist so they can be taken care of. But I wanted to be on the end where I would receive a sick child and then hopefully be able to make them get better. And cancer kind of appealed to me because I felt we were making significant progress in pediatric cancer when I was training, which was in the 1980s. And even way back then, we started to make some significant progress, for example, in taking care of children who had leukemia. Whereas when I was a little child, if you were diagnosed with leukemia as a child, it was basically a death sentence. By the time I was doing my residency, we started to have some really significant successes in taking care of children with leukemia as well as some other cancers. And I thought, gosh, this is a subspecialty where you can potentially provide treatment to patients where they have a potentially terminal illness, but you can turn that around and you have the opportunity and the potential, not everybody, but you have the potential of curing children who 20 years earlier would not have been cured. And so that really appealed to me to take care of very ill patients, but have the opportunity and the chance and the potential of potentially curing them. So that's how I ended up selecting pediatric oncology as a subspecialty after I completed my residency. And then I went on and did some more training specifically, which is called a fellowship. I did more training in a 
fellowship program, which was actually at Children's Memorial Hospital, which is now Lurie Children's Hospital in pediatric oncology. And I learned how to take care of patients with a variety of different cancers as well as hematologic diseases. Dr. Cohen, how do you have those like tough conversations with parents? I know that the child is usually optimistic. They really, I guess, can't absorb everything that's going on with them. How do you comfort parents in those situations? Yeah, it's easier now than it was way back when because after we make a diagnosis of cancer in a child, uh, with few exceptions, there are a few exceptions, but with most diseases, most of the kinds of pediatric cancers we see, we are able to cure a substantial number of the patients. So at the time of initial diagnosis, I will explain to the family what the diagnosis is. And then I will say that we have treatment that potentially can cure your child. And my intent is to cure your child. So it's actually not the initial diagnosis and the initial conversation that is tough. The tough conversation is when the standard of care treatment doesn't work and if the cancer comes back and the patient relapses or the patient develops progressive disease, you know, while receiving the standard of care treatment, that's when it's a tougher conversation because then it's much, much more difficult to cure the patient and that those conversations are very hard. And how do you deal with, you know, in those instances of mortality, how do you, I guess, go through it? for lack of a better uh, phrase. Yeah, and that's a very tough part of my job too. And I can tell you, we now cure approximately 80% of all children with various types of pediatric cancer, but that means 20% are not cured. And unfortunately, we still are seeing way too many deaths in children who have cancer. And again, there are certain diseases where we have very little chance of curing the patients. And when it's clear that our treatment isn't working, and the patient is continuing to have their disease progress and not responding to the various therapies we have to offer. We try very hard to be supportive. We try very hard to explain to the parents what's going on. We try to make sure that the patient's comfortable. I try to listen to the family and the mom and the dad and learn a little bit more about what they would like to do at certain phases of the illness. Some parents want whatever time the patient has left to be at home. Other parents are not interested in having the patient be at home and would rather be enrolled in experimental treatments and try other kinds of treatment that we know very little about in terms of whether the treatment will do anything in terms of being successful in terms of limiting the growth of the tumor. But those are all very hard conversations. And when a child does die, it's heartbreaking. It's always been heartbreaking for me. When I first was learning to be a doctor, and I was very early in my fellowship, during my first year, I had a child die very unexpectedly of a overwhelming infection very shortly after the diagnosis of leukemia. I was really devastated by the death, so much so that I, I just found myself crying all the time. And I really questioned whether or not this was a field that I could pursue as a profession because it was really, 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 really tough. And I think what happens is over time, I've never lost that. I'm still very sad every time one of my patients dies. I remember all of them. 
And it's something that never leaves you as being awful, but you try your best to bring as much support and comfort to the family as you can. And so it's part of the job. So you don't always get to have home run and cure everybody. And if you go into this profession, your hope is, and I do a fair amount of research because my hope is that I'm going to eventually be able to help develop better therapies that will increase our success rates. But I very much recognize that, at least as of 2018, there are unfortunately children who will die. And the best you can do, that's part of the job, is to be there for the families, Mm -hmm. to answer all their questions as best you can. We have all sorts of other experts that we work with who are social workers and various doctors that are focused on palliative care. And we try our best to make sure patients are not in pain and that they're comfortable and that we do the utmost in terms of communicating to the patients and to the families of what to expect and what we can do and what we can help them with. And that's unfortunately part of the job also. So it's a tough part of the job. And we keep up many times with families. I have met up with families 10, 20 years after their child has died and still have a bond with them. But it's it's very hard. That's the hardest uh-huh. part of the job. Yeah. And doctor, you mentioned that there are, you know, some new therapies being developed. And I know you, you yourself are working on a clinical trial uh, phase one. What is the next promising therapy that you see is, is on the rise in pediatric oncology? I specifically, for my research, I specifically focus on a type of cancer that's called neuroblastoma. And this is a cancer that originates in nerve cells outside of the brain. So it's not a brain cancer, but it originates in nerve cells that we have in our body along the spine and in a gland that sits on top of the kidney that's called the adrenal gland. And this is a cancer that's very interesting because it has a very broad spectrum of clinical behavior and response to therapy. So there are some children who have neuroblastoma that have high, high cure rates with very little therapy, well over 95% cure with very modest therapy, sometimes surgery alone, sometimes just low-dose therapy, sometimes no therapy is needed at all and the patients are cured. And then there's another form of the disease that's very, very aggressive and very resistant to therapy. And if you have the high-risk form of the disease, we cure somewhere between 50 to 60% of the patients today uh, who have high-risk neuroblastoma, but that requires very intensive chemotherapy and surgery. And right now we're doing two rounds of high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell transplant and radiation and immunotherapy. But what has been very remarkable, at least from my own personal career, is 30 years ago, I guess, when I started, I told families that their child with high-risk neuroblastoma had a 20% chance of being cured. And so today I can tell that family that their child has a 50 to 60% chance of being cured. And that's all of those successes are due through something called the Children's Oncology Group and various other collaborative, cooperative clinical trials that we have done where we've been constantly testing new treatment approaches and comparing it to the standard of care approach. And over the last 30 years, as I said, we've developed better and better and better treatments in terms of improving survival, but the treatments have become increasingly toxic and increasingly harsh. And this is a tumor that originates, develops typically in children that are around two years old It can develop in infants as well. It rarely does affect older patients and adolescents, but it's typically a disease of toddlers. 
And so as you're increasingly intensifying chemotherapy, you can imagine a two-year-old getting all these very toxic therapies can take its toll. So we're trying very hard to figure out how to develop effective treatments that aren't quite as toxic. And I've personally been involved in a clinical trial that was testing a form of immunotherapy or antibody therapy, where we've actually, there's actually an antibody that attaches to neuroblastoma cells, and then the patient's immune cells will then destroy the patient's tumor. And we published a study now a long time ago in 2010 where we demonstrated this particular antibody therapy to be very successful and we actually improved survival rates in patients who received the antibody compared to patients who did not receive the antibody therapy by 20%. And I'm very happy to tell you that in 2015, this particular drug was FDA approved for high-risk neuroblastoma. But this is an example of a type of therapy that's different than chemotherapy and it's different than radiation. And I think as we develop more targeted therapies that targets the tumor and doesn't target all the other cells in the body, that hopefully we'll develop treatments that'll be much more focused on killing the tumor cells and hopefully not harming the other body cells. That when you harm normal tissue, when you harm the bone marrow cells and you harm the liver and you harm the heart and the kidney, that's when you run into all sorts of problems with toxicity. So we're hopeful that as we continue to move forward, that we'll be able to identify additional, we're calling them targeted treatments that are focused on killing neuroblastoma cells and not being as harmful on the normal cells. And we're getting some clues right now. We're doing a lot of gene studies where we're looking at the genetics of tumors. We're also looking at the genetics of patients' normal cells. And we're getting some clues as to what genes are abnormal in these tumor cells. And as we learn that, there are new drugs that are coming out that target various pathways that are activated by these abnormal genes, as well as hopefully learning more about different types of immunotherapy that we can use that will enhance the body's own immune system to help us also fight this disease. Thank you, Doctor, so much. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I've learned so much. I really appreciate your service and your passion. I have one last question because I know you have to go. You're limited on time. What is your best advice for people that work in the healthcare industry or that want to be doctors? What is your advice for them to be successful in this industry? I think you have to just be passionate about what you do. There's a lot of barriers right now. Yeah. We have, unfortunately, very tough insurance issues going on right now. And there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of forms that need to be filled out. There's a lot of documentation that needs to be done. So there's a lot of grunt work and scut work that comes with the territory to be able to take care of patients and particularly children that I've run into who have cancer. And so there are days when I'm pulling my hair out because I'm trying so hard to take care of a patient and I have to talk to the insurance company to try to explain why it's so important for this patient to get a particular treatment. And that's very, very, very tough. But If you are passionate about what you're doing and if indeed you want to truly make a difference in this world and you want to improve the health of, in my case, it's children, 
there's not a better job in the whole wide world than being able to, it's truly a privilege. I look at it as a privilege to be able to take care of patients, my patients with cancer, and to be able to be part of this very difficult journey that families are making. And of course, when it's a successful journey and the patients are cured and they do well at the end of the road, it of course makes my day. I do think you just need to be truly passionate and love what you do. Great. Well, thank you so much, doctor. Like I said, I really, really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I had a good time. Thanks so much for inviting me to do this. Oh, no problem. Take care, doctor. Thanks again. 